How you doing? Good. More importantly, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Pretty good. Please tell me you're still just beautiful and bald. Well, you can see me if you turn on your camera. Oh, I'm I'm actually in the sound in the sound booth. I figured out that I have a face for podcasting. So I sit in the sound booth and we don't record video. But I'll wave. Yes, I am uh, I'm quite bald. Um no uh no visible signs of hair growth returning. The did they give you any expectations on that? He, my oncologist he said three months. Is there any chance it takes hold and that's just your look from now on, or are you begging for it to come back? I, I joke, I, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's grown on me in the, in the sense that I can look in the mirror and not be, like, you know, startled. <laughs> Mortified. <laughs> I look, but um, I said, you know, when, when given the choice, I'll, uh, I choose hair. <laughs> so I've I've been bald twice. Once was that very first uh, YDC roast we did, and yeah. and all just not very attractive. Um, and then because that was Fat Chuck, and then Skinny Chuck was actually bald when James Broach was going yeah. through brain cancer, and we did the sympathy head shave. And I looked better when I was skinny, but Buddy Clark called me Scary Chuck. Was <laughs> the bald guy? So, anyway. saw his networks drop Oh, he poured a glass of vino Because Chuck Yates needs a job Very honored today. My guest is fellow Rice alum, more importantly, Rice athlete baseball player, David Hayes. And you did something in finance, right? Natural Gas Partners or something like that? something in fact um i i haven't checked i haven't checked a, a historical calendar but um i started in the summer of 1998 it might have been today it was it was uh it was a monday at the end of june so uh maybe the 29th maybe the 26th something something in that zip code so yeah 23 23 years ago today and it took two years off to go to business school but uh otherwise i've been there you're a lifer. Total. You're a lifer at Natural Gas Partners. The did you did were you at an investment bank before you went to uh, business school, or was it straight undergrad to NGP? And as I recall, NGP liked to send you guys off to get your MBA and then bring you back. Yeah, I I spent um, I graduated from Rice in 1996, and I spent two years at Merrill Lynch in Houston. You know, which was which was a great experience and a lot of. A lot of good people um, that I worked with are are still very prominent in the in the Houston energy um, finance market. But uh, two two years there, and and then um, I got a call one day from from uh, Bruce Selkirk, if you know Bruce, yeah, who uh, who was at NGP, and and um, you know 
sort of sort of opened a, a new opportunity and um I, I went and interviewed with ken in march of 98 and he he didn't dislike me enough to not give me the job so uh, <laughs> that that's the victory with ken he didn't hate me <laughs> yeah so anyway i joined joined in the summer of 98 so, so I want to come back to to natural gas partners in just a second, but we really got to get to the to the real stuff. So, Rice University. After, gosh, I forget how many years he was actually there. We had Wayne Graham. We were really good in baseball. We won the national title. An unfortunate incident happened that you know Graham was no longer at Rice, and uh, we had another manager for two years. But now. We have a brand new manager they announced last week, Jose Cruz Jr. Is he the guy? You know, I I think he he he's got huge potential. Um, you know, he, he's um, first of all, I've known him since we were in elementary school together, and um, you know, gr- great guy, hard hard worker, comes from a you know family of baseball people who who are, um, just, just, it's a great family, um, dedicated to, to, to family and, and to, uh, into baseball. But, um, you know, we, we went middle school, everything except high school. He went to Bel Air. I went to Lamar. So we played against each other. And then, you know, he was highly recruited to rice. I was, uh, accepted as a walk-on. Um, <laughs> cho- choosing choosing to go, you know, to to a great school close to home as opposed to you know a uh, you know other other great schools further from home that might have had baseball teams that were more uh, conducive to my skill level at that point. But um, you know, I, I I played my freshman year. It was Coach Graham's second year. He start he started uh, moved from you know, Sam Jack to Rice in, in 91 and made a big impact on that program. Just going, I, I, I can't remember exact numbers, but they were like 20, the year before he came they were like 25 and 35. And then, you know, with, with mostly the same people, some augmentation a year later, they were 35 and 25. And then my freshman year, which is his second year, we started the season, something like 22 and two and, and um you know mostly non-conference games we're still in the southwest conference but he had recruited Cruz and you know some other uh, notable freshmen and um that made an impact and and you know once we got into conference it was a little tougher you're playing texas and a&m and and texas tech who um but um you know, it was still, still a noted, noted improvement. And then every year from there, it's got a little better, you know, make, making the, 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 the tournament in 95, 96, they, in both years, they lost, I think in 95, they lost to Cal state Fullerton who went on to win the college world series. And then in 96 lost to LSU in the, in the regional or super regional and who went on to win the college world series. And then 97, they made, they made it for the first time. And that was, you know, on the backs of uh, Lance Berkman and Bubba Crosby and some, you know, some other really talented people, again, who, who Coach Graham had, had recruited and developed. 
So my favorite, my favorite Berkman Graham story that I've heard, and uh, actually Berkman told this to me, is Graham one year got on some kick that you had to run a mile in seven and a half minutes or seven minutes or something, and or no maybe it was maybe it was the three mile loop at Memorial you had to run in twenty five minutes. There was some skill test involved with running, and so Berkman had literally set up that they would take off running and then a buddy was going to pick him up in the back of a pickup truck, drive him around the loop, and then let him off towards the finish line so he could sprint in and he could make it. And uh, anyway, so Berkman, you know, they're supposed to do the run at 8 o'clock, so it's 7.30, everybody's out there stretching and getting ready and, and all this, no Berkman. 7.45, everybody's you know, stretching, still no Berkman. 757 Berkman pulls up in his car he's wearing blue tight sweatpants and he's painted his whole body blue because he doesn't have a shirt on and he's wearing a blue base uh, football helmet and he runs up and he tells coach Graham the blue streak is running the whole way Graham and literally Graham's like all right get your ass over there they line up they hit go and Berkman just sprints off to the lead. And Berkman's sitting there running because he's like, great, my buddy in the pickup truck's going to come pick him up. Well, the guy never shows up. Suppose he was hung over from the night before. So Berkman winds up running the whole thing, finishes the accomplishment, whatever it was, 25 minutes or whatever he had to do it, but literally kind of passed out at the finish line. It was laying on the ground. And supposedly Graham comes over to him and just starts screaming at him, Berkman, I know you cheated. I know you cheated. And he started kicking Berkman and got blue stuff all over his shoes. And, uh, and uh, that's just such a Berkman and Graham story. Yeah, you know, I think one of one of Coach Graham's, I mean, he's, he's a, a brilliant guy and a, you know, a student of human, human nature. And what I experienced... Um, you know, Berkman was two years below me and I wasn't on the team by the time he got there, but, but still observed stuff. And, um, you know, he, he rode, he rode the most talented people, the hardest. So, you know, I, I warmed up with crews many, many days, um, you know, before practice or before games and, and he would, you know, he'd be all, all over crews. He didn't have anything to say to me. He's like, I can yell at that guy, yell, yell at that guy all day. He he can't really run any faster. Although although in, in fairness, he did send me over to work with the track coach, and I did run faster. Um, um, but uh, but you know, it was interesting to see. I think in a lot of programs, a lot of coaches, whether it's baseball or 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 other organizations, have nothing to do with athletics. You know, the the stars kind of get coddled, and. I think what coach Graham recognized is, you know, that the, the, the stars make the difference, you know, make sure that they're focused and they're, and they're maximizing their potential. And that's, that is the difference maker in the games. You know, the, 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 the less talented people who are there are there in part because they, they bust their butt and, you know, riding them harder isn't going to get more output and therefore not really going to change it. So use your, use your time and energy to, to focus on the, the people that are really making a difference and, and, uh, you know, dr- drive them. But 
That's an interesting point. I'd never thought about that. I didn't know that I'd I'd seen that in Graham because I'd always heard Berkman stories. But you know, the the take I always had was Berkman was just a bit of a goofhead. So you know, he got under Graham's skin on purpose. But now that you say that, you know, Bill Parcells was the same way. Uh, Bill Parcells pro- supposedly re- rode the stars pretty hard. Like when Parcells took over the Cowboys, he uh, supposedly just started picking on Darren Woodson literally every day. If a rookie made a mistake, he'd make Darren Woodson uh, do push-ups. And it was hearing Woodson talk about it later, it was like, you know, hey, if 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 he's controlling me like that and pushing me to do better, everybody else is scared to death and it's going to work harder too. So interesting take. The thing I always found about Graham is I always thought he was actually a bad game manager. I mean, he was such a slave to the bunt. He was such a slave to the the righty-lefty matchups. I mean, I don't think he ever ever pinch hit for Bubba Crosby to get a righty-lefty matchup. But, you know, I mean, he, he did a lot of that stuff. But, boy, when it came to player development and teaching those pitchers how to throw that knuckle curveball, I mean, that – that seemed to me to, to be the thing that really set him apart and why we were so good for all those years. Yeah, I mean, I think he did have a, a pretty, you know, a, a focus on pitching. If You know, look look at the, the stats from the Rice team this year in pitching. I was I was astonished. The, the team ERA is, uh, I don't have it in front of me, but it's, it's like north of four. Um, it's hard to find anybody that, that had – really impressive stats, but you, you know, you go back to uh, what, what seems like 50 years ago now, but 18 years ago when they won the college world series and in those three pitchers were, and then just the whole team ERA was probably below three. I mean, it was shocking how, how good, you know, they were four. their, their fourth pitcher was um, Josh Baker, who still got drafted in the fourth round. I think he was my, uh, he was my, st- uh, the one one uh, one summer I did Rice baseball camp, which is summer in '93. Josh Baker was in my group, and he was just head and shoulders above the other ten year olds, I think. That, but um, but anyway, you know, just such a focus on pitcher and pitcher and development. I mean, Matt Anderson, who came in, who was the same year as Berkman, you know, probably a forgotten fact. Um, he was the number one pick in the in the MLB draft in 1997. Berkman was number 16, but Matt Anderson, you know, came in as a, as a skinny kid that, you know, some, some, uh, scout, I think had tipped coach Graham on and said, this guy's got potential. You should take, take a risk on him. I, I'm pretty sure he's from Louisville, Kentucky. So hardly, you know, in the backyard of, of rice and, you know, round numbers, he was like six, six feet, maybe 150 pounds as a freshman. And by the time, he was a junior. He was six four, probably you know two hundred pounds, and throwing a hundred hundred plus miles an hour. And you know, I saw I saw him. It was one of the the first games he pitched, maybe his major league debut at at uh, in Arlington, and he was hit. He was in the radar at one hundred four. But you know, some someone who had the vision to and and the ability to develop somebody from you know a, a scrawny scrawny kid. It was. It was throwing, you know, mid eighties to, you know, to 
what he was two years ago or two years later. Um, you know, and there are other examples of that, you know, but pri prior to Rice, uh, you know, I, I played against Andy Pettit. It was two years ahead of me and he played at Deer Park, but he, he was kind of a, uh, you know, he was the number two pitcher on his high school team behind a guy named Jay Vaught who went to UT and I think ultimately got drafted maybe in the second round, but Pettit was a kind of a, kind of a squatty left-hander who, you know, threw strikes, but didn't throw that hard. And, you know, we went, went, uh, got drafted really late by the Yankees, like the 27th round. Somebody's looking it up on Wikipedia right now. And, um, went to, went to, uh, San Jack for a year and developed and the Yankees signed him before the next draft. But obviously he, he has a, you know, had a career that, you know, was arguably hall, hall of fame caliber. And that was somebody, uh, coach Graham and, and then, and then mm -hmm. of course, Roger Clemens, uh, coach Graham also coached it at San Jack, uh, similar thing. You know, he was, he was the number two pitcher on his high school team at spring woods behind, uh, Rainer Noble, who was our assistant at, at Rice when I was there. Um, but, you know, everybody knows what, what Clemens went on to do, but also a product of Coach Graham's player development. Yeah, I think the, I think the, you know, the thing I heard about, you know, it was he would teach folks the knuckle curve, which was an amazing out pitch. And then the other thing he did was supposedly he was really good about efficiency of movement. You know, so these pitchers would come with these big wind-ups to rice, and, uh, and he'd say, time out. You know, we're not stepping back. We're not doing this over the head. I mean, some pitchers, even starting pitchers, he made just pitch from the stretch so that they wouldn't flail their, flail their bodies around. And so, yeah, there, there's no question. I think on the downside is he probably had pitchers throw too much, so I don't know that we wound up with as many great rice pitchers in the major leagues just because they were overworked. But I don't know if that's a fair criticism or not. Yeah, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, the, you know, uh, that was certainly always a criticism of, of, uh, uh, Cliff Gustafson at Texas. Um, I, I think, I think most players, um, and there's more focus on it these days, but you know, 20, plus years ago kids who were good pitchers got overpitched at all levels um i actually about it was i think it was 2012 <clears throat> i went to a, a rangers game with ken and we sat in the in the owner's box and i ended up sitting next to jim sunberg who is a you know uh, was catcher for the rangers in the in the 80s and was president of the team at that time and um Anyway, he's, he was telling me about, about um, a study somebody had done in what they called the, the select ball era. And, and it was really kids that were just a little bit younger than, than I am. Uh, he, he specifically mentioned Kerry Wood and Mark Pryor, who were phenoms at, at sort of a high school or college level. And then, you know, had, had, a, a degree of success in the, in the major leagues, but short careers. And, um, I, I think that's kind of what you're, you're touching on. And, and he, the study, I'll forget the, the exact things, but it was, it was something, it was American born pitchers who, who had more than, I want to say maybe 200 innings in the major leagues. 
and then American-born hitters who had more than a thousand at-bats, and they just mapped where they were from. And there was a shocking, um, well, the, the the statement, the obvious, um, the hitters were mostly from the Sun Belt, so call it North Carolina down along the Gulf Coast across and up to Northern California, um, because they got to play year round, and you know the, the Malcolm Gladwell ten thousand hours rule kicked in, and and there were just more of them from the from yeah, the baseball, south. Yeah, baseball doesn't do very well with snow on the ground. So, right. Yeah. But but um, then when you looked at pitchers, they found that you know there's still you know ba- baseball's still more popular in the south, but they found a a larger number from you know, the upper Midwest or even, even, you know, the Northeast, the places like Indiana and Michigan. And, and, um, you know, I, th- I think of, you know, Tom Glavin from Bill Ricca, Massachusetts, who, you know, he, he played, he played baseball when the snow melted and he played hockey when it, you know, when it was cold, but he did the point being, he didn't get over pitched. And, um, you know, then you look at today, you know, you watch, watch Jacob deGrom. I mean, that guy, is just you know dominant it's fun to fun to watch but you know he was a, he was a college shortstop who got converted to to being a pitcher and and you know by i think somewhat by virtue of that wasn't over pitched at the little league high school college level however you define that being over pitched and you know has has still has uh, gas in the tank and he has a lot of gas because he's throwing right. 100, 101 pretty consistently. Um, but, you know, it just just to, examples of it feels like, I mean, I, I can remember pitching in, especially in, for some reason, summer league, because I think we had dads coaching who weren't really paying that attention, you know, throwing 150 pitches in a game, um, you know, seven in game. Now that was a little bit of commentary on my on my uh, control, but uh, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but uh, you know nobody was nobody was keeping a pitch count, and now you know it, it's almost gotten silly that you know parents are keeping pitch counts, and it's like you know the bell went off. You know I got to preserve my my kid's arm for their major league career, and I, I think I, I saw a stat watching you know watching the the Vanderbilt Mississippi State game last night two two percent of of college athletes go on to you know to play in the pros but you know i I think if you surveyed you know pick pick your pick your uh little league of of type a's whether you know it's west u or or post oak you you went out and surveyed the parents on any given night and said which of these kids is going to play in the pros and you know they they probably tell you half of them and the reality is it it will be very 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 few um there'll be one every whatever once a decade type thing yeah the yeah i still remember it was i want to say it was against nebraska in a super regional but i may be making it up but i think kenny baugh threw 182 pitches in a a rice game and i don't even know how he picked up his his arm afterwards but yeah it was different days because i mean way back in the day i mean Walter Johnson, Cy Young. I mean, those guys pitched every other day. 
you know, and uh, it certainly wasn't four days rest. So, okay, so you go from Rice, you go to Merrill Lynch. Who do you work with at Merrill Lynch? I'm trying to think of who was the, the team back then because they didn't buy Petrie Parkman until, you know, mid-2000s. Yeah, so who was, who was back <laughs> Who was back at the Merrill Lynch group? So Chris Mize gave me my job offer. Oh, wow. Okay. You know, he's he runs Morgan Stanley uh, office there now and has for, you know, the last five plus years. Um, Ira Green, is it Simmons? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I worked closely together. Um, Rick Gordon ran the office and... Uh, Sam Dodson, who's um, who's now retired, was a was one of the heads, and uh, Skylar Tilney, right? If you know Skylar, they were kind of the three heads of the office. There's a guy named Rob Jones, uh, Bill Montgomery, who's a quantum. Okay, who, yeah. Uh, Rob Payshaw, who runs the Evercore office, was a was an associate, a uh, great guy, as uh, one of the I think probably one of the hardest working sharpest bankers i've i've uh, ever interacted with greg pipkin was there for a year before he left to go to lehman um man that was the, a that was a stunning array of talent in that in that yeah. office because the because the previous incarnation at the merrill lynch office i think had been sandy vaughn gene shepherd who's now you know, CEO of Brigham, Mike Ames, who just retired as head of the energy group at, at Raymond James, they were kind of all at all at Merrill Merrill Lynch and had just kind of in the wave of what banks did with energy, you know, staff up and then get rid of them as energy kind of went through its cycles. So you had just missed that group. And I'd forgotten, I'd forgotten that the thing I heard about Gordon is he used to be able to just dictate a whole pitch book like in one breath, <laughs> you know, he would dictate it and his assistant would go type it up and it'd always be perfect. Yeah. He's, he's a, he's a, he's an interesting guy. And, um, you know, he, he would, um, I, I was telling the story to, with Ira recounting the story with Ira sometime in the past three or four months. And, um, he would, he would come in my office and my office mate was a guy named Adam Zalman who, who's, um, was at SCF for a while and does a lot in service, but um, he'd come in and Adam played football at Rice before he got hurt. And, uh, he'd go, "All right, guys, we're going to the gym," and it'd be eleven fifteen in the morning, and we didn't have a choice. It was just like stop what you're doing and come to the gym, and we're we're going to do whatever his little routine was. Then you're going to have lunch. This is the Houston Center Club, which is above the. Um, the parking garage kind of next to the park shops <clears throat> and you know we might get back an hour and a half later but it was it was what he what he dictated for us to do that day so one day i was working on something with ira and you know like the timeline was we had to have it done by two o'clock for whatever reason and um and rick came in snapped his fingers said come on we're going to the gym and i you know i said man this is this is the one day i'm gonna i'm gonna protest and say i just i'm just too busy today and i said rick i i gotta get this done I, you know iris iris waiting for it and, and he i mean he just shut it down he looked at me and his 
eyes got big and he said, you don't work for Ira. You work for <laughs> and it was just, you know, I just, I just dropped it and I got up, I went to the gym. I was like, I'm, you know, I got, I got two choices here and go to the gym or and get fired. And, and, uh, so I went to the gym, I come back, you know, Ira's like, where the hell have you been? And he starts, you know, it's one of those, you know, shut the door and what are you thinking? And he's like, next time, you know, he tells you, you got to go to the gym. You tell him you got stuff to do. And I was like, I did that. How about next time you tell him? And And he kind of paused. He's like, all right, well, let's just get it done. I was like, all right, I'm going to go get it done. But, you know, (laughs) I didn't have a choice. I didn't have a choice. uh, That's awesome. Ira was a big talking VP at that point, I'm sure. uh, Yeah, that's about right. Yeah, that's about right. But great, you know, great group of people, very, very talented, um, you know, have gone on to, you know, to maintain those, the senior positions. I mean, at the time, you know, all, most of that group came from first Boston. You're talking about, you know, the Sandy Vons, uh, Merrill, Merrill did some big coup where they, they hired Rick and all, all those people. And I want to say it was 93 or 94, um, little, you know, a couple of years before I graduated. Um, but, um, uh, they had all moved over, but, but really there, you know, I, I asked um, one of our associates who was in the city office before coming to NGP. I said, "How many analysts did you have at, at in the city Houston office?" And he was like, "Oh, it was you know like 24." I was like, "You realize the city of Houston didn't have 24 analyst positions when I came out of college in 1996, and there there wasn't. There wasn't even. I don't even think it was close. I mean, we had we had like six or seven positions at Merrill." Um, and then, you know, first Boston probably had like five and then you just go, you know, Simmons had two and, and Payne Weber had one and, and Petrie Parkman had one. You just have to, you know, onesie twosie until, you know, you got up to, to, to something in the, in the order of 15 to 20 and, and, you know, just the growth in the Houston energy finance community over the past 25 years has been been pretty tremendous but but like i said i still i still interact with half a dozen plus of the people that i worked with during those two years and um really count count them as friends and and um you know industry contacts so bruce selkirk calls you you go interview with natural gas partners you don't piss ken off now i heard something that i'm gonna i'm gonna put you on the spot and you can confirm nor or deny or uh, or say no comment. I didn't know this. I always thought that uh, Dave Albans and Ken Hirsch co-founded uh, co co-founded Natural Gas Partners. I just found out like within the last year, Ken didn't join till like six months later. It was the rewrite of the narrative that he was a co-founder. Is that true or false? Um, you know I. I obviously wasn't there. I'll tell you what, you know, from a timeline perspective, and then you can kind of make your own judgment. The, the, you know, the concept of, of natural gas partners, which was a bit of a default name. Um, uh, so just to back up a little bit, uh, the, the Genesis was from Richard Rainwater, 
you know, who's a, who's now passed away about, about six years ago from a awful degenerative disease, but, um, you know, famous investor made a ton of money for the Bass family and then left to go out on his own in 1996 and then went on to, um, you know, to found companies that are like now HCA healthcare was instrumental in uh, reorging what was, what became Insco and, and pioneer, um, and then Crescent real estate. But, you know, Richard, Richard was sort of this, you know, famous, famous investor and sometime, sometime in the 1988 timeframe, he met with a McKinsey partner named Jeff, Jeff Skilling and Jeff Skilling had a, had a book that basically said the gas bubble, you know, the oversupply from the, from the early nineties is gonna, you know, supply and demand is going to be come back and balance. There's going to be a price event. Prices are going to pop and you just want, you want to be long natural gas when that happens. Um, and so Richard was like, yeah, you know, makes sense. Let's, let's find an investment vehicle to, you know, to, to profit from that. So he, he called up, I, I think it was Dick Jenrette who was running, you know, of the DLJ um, acronym, but uh, Dick Jenrette was running the equitable insurance company in New York and you know, was looking to, to put money behind good deals, especially stuff that Richard did. And Richard said, I got an idea and it's really to, you know, to get long natural gas. And then Richard, um, when, when he was still with the Basses, had, uh, had worked with David Alban and Alban, um, came out, well, Alvin, Alvin went to Stanford, graduated in 81 and then worked, worked in New York in the Goldman energy group, and then went back and got his MBA at Stanford and graduated in 85 and then went to work for this joint venture that was called BILP or Bass Investment Limited Partnership. And it was a joint venture in Greenwich, Connecticut between the Bass family and Drexel Burnham. And I don't think they had a particular focus on energy, but probably, you know, some energy deal flow, but Richard, you know, knew David and knew he had energy experience. So, you know, he, he recruited David to do it. And then he, he picked up as the story goes, he picked up an institutional investor and said, who's the, the leading natural gas analyst. And it was a guy named Gamble Baldwin from first Boston, who, who was actually the, the research analyst, um, when Rick Gordon ran the, the first Boston group. Um, and, uh, Anyway, he was kind of the luminary, but he was, you know, he was close to retirement. I, I, I met him a handful of times and he passed away maybe, maybe in 03 at, you know, give or take 80, 80, 84 years old. Um, but, but anyway, that was kind of the, you know, the quick recruit. And then Ken, Ken was at Stanford business school. Um, he graduated in, in 89. And was sending letters. He's from Dallas, um, sending letters back to you know potential job opportunities back in the DFW area. And he was sending sending them to Richard. And you know, at some point, uh, either Richard or somebody in you know in his organization saw that Ken Ken had worked at the Morgan Stanley. And so Richard made a couple calls and um, and uh, you know got a good re- got good references on Ken. And so he called him and, and 
and Ken Ken tells a story because Richard, um, you know, till till he was incapacitated, would always have his assistant call. Um, so you you know you pick up the phone and it'd be his assistant. She'd go, you know, please hold for Mr. Rainwater. <laughs> and so so Ken, you know, gets a call like this out out in his dorm room at Stanford, and he thinks it's some of his buddies screwing with him. But um, you know he he hears this voice and Richard had a real kind of jovial um, voice. And he says, Richard says, you want the quote? And Ken's like, what? He's like, you want the quote? And uh, he goes, okay. And meaning, you know, quoting somebody what they said. And it was, you know, somebody that Richard had called it at Morgan Stanley energy group and, and sang Ken's praises. So basically they worked out a, a little consulting gig where Ken in his spare time was going to go, going to kind of verify, I think the McKinsey study on, uh, you know, on, on the near term, near, near and long-term uh, natural gas prices. And so, you know, Ken tells a story, he, he, uh, you know, sends Richard basically a bill for $5,000, kind of a, a retainer. And, and like 10, 10 days later, he gets a FedEx and it's a check from Rainwater Inc. But that that was sort of his, you know, project that he did his his second year, and and he tells a story about coming home to Dallas for around Thanksgiving, and um, and Richard having him come over and and uh, present his study that he had done, and you know, uh, copied at Kinkos and Bound and. Uh, um, but uh, he presented his study to, I think, the, the decision maker, the final decision makers at, at Equitable. So, you know, the 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 uh, the date on the tombstone for the first NGP fund, which was $100 million, I think it was entirely, with the exception of the GP, the Equitable insurance companies is, is November of 1988. So it was right around, you know, that time. Um, so you know he he was he was there and and involved but didn't really technically become an employee or or you know part of the organization until he he graduated in whatever May June of of eighty nine. Um, so wow, so it is it is fair to say he was he was uh, he was a co founder. I kind of liked it as the uh, the uh, the slide, and I like Ken a lot, obviously. But uh, the slightest side of yeah, you weren't there at the beginning, were you, Ken? But I guess you can't really say that. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, was he was he, um, you know, named as a co-managing partner in the formation documents? No, but but you know, fu- function. He was he was present. He was present, and and you know, the the name Natural Gas Partners because it was it was really designed to be an event-driven bet on natural gas prices. You know they. They they put it natural gas in brackets, and then it was going to be renamed to something partners, you know, something more creative. And they kept going through these drafts of the document, and nobody addressed it, and nobody came up with a better name. And then eventually, they you know it got down to you know less than a handful of of things, and they said, "What are we going to call this thing?" I'm like I don't know, just take the brackets off. Oh, and that's-, that's how that, that's how it became natural gas partners. Now, you know, years later you know, call it sometime in the early 2000s, we created the the holding co and sort of the the swoosh 
um, uh, logo. And, and that's when, you know, NGP energy capital was formed and we kind of dropped just the, you know, the, the very generic and somewhat boring natural gas partners name and, and made it a little, you know, little, gave it a little more sizzle. And so, you know, Ken, that was Ken's idea. So if you, if you want to you say, you know, he was a founder of NGP energy capital, that's true because, because that was, you know, created subsequent to the original. Ah, there you go. But either way, either way, you know, he was involved in the, in the very early days and clearly, you know, his vision and leadership was, was very important to, you know, to the, the growth, the growth of the firm. Oh yeah, clearly. I mean, he's the, uh, two, two kind of funny stories to that. One of the speeches I had to give at the IPAA capital conference they wanted me to get up there and compare and contrast every private equity fund. And I was like, that's a no-win situation. I, you know, I say something bad about a competitor. They'll, of course, you know, ride me about it. If I say all nice things, people you know, say, oh, you were just throwing softballs up to uh, you know, puff pieces up on your competitors. And so what I did, and I think you and I have talked about this, so hopefully I'm not <laughs> breaking new ground here, but... Um, what I'd done was I compared each of the, uh, each of the, uh, private equity funds to rock bands and NGP, I actually said was, uh, the Beatles cause you guys did start it. I mean, as the Beatles, you know, created pop music and all, I mean, NGP clearly created this business. Now I did throw in the side note that when y'all sold yourselves or sold 50% of yourselves to Barclays, you did it so you could talk in a British accent and not sound any more pompous than you already are. But, you know, that was that was the funny side of the speech. <laughs> it, was, it was only 40% to Barclays, only 40%. Only 40%. Yeah, I actually heard original pitches, fundraising uh, pitches for NGP. Uh, the, the joke would be made that we were actually... Uh, founded by um, two felons, you know, Michael Milken at Drexel and uh, Jeff Skilling at Enron. And uh, supposedly uh, those jokes didn't go over very well and they stopped. <laughs> but I, I, I've heard there were some fundraising meetings that started that way. Yeah, you know, I, I never heard that, but, but you know, there might have been, like I said, I came in 10 years into the, just under 10 years into the fund's life. So, uh yeah, that might have been a, an attempted humor that that uh, in an early earlier uh, fundraising that that didn't go over well, but the, but there's you know there's a little bit of truth to it. Um, yeah, no, I I I learned very quickly the, to watch the jokes around LPs because uh, not not the uh, not the the fun the the funniest bunch and and the like, and you do need to be taken seriously. So, so well, just a quick you know if you've probably you know gotten one of our business cards we use the same we've had the same paper texture as as long as i've been there and i think as long as the firm's been around and that paper texture was taken from from drexel business cards it, it was it, it's from the same printer in la that did all of all of the drexel business cards so and michael milken never had any involvement and never anything shady in the but there that that bass investment limited partnership joint venture that david alban came out of you know they, they they carried over the you know just a little a little thing like that and then just you know 
was adopted at NGP. It's but that's that's the history in that. So um, so I you know obviously when you uh, when you get booted from a private equity fund, a firm, they make you clean out your office and take all your stuff away. So uh, I was a bit of a pack rat, and I mean I'd been at Kane, call it twenty years, and you know I I just kept boxes of stuff and I wouldn't throw things away. And, you know, cleaning out my office, taking that stuff, you know, bringing it home and kind of going through it to, to put away. I actually found a business card of William Quinn listed as, I believe, a principal or like a director. I don't think it was vice president, but it was it was definitely not Billy Quinn, you know, managing director or Billy Quinn, you know, co-managing partner or whatever the case may be. And it was William, William Quinn. At one point, you know, we, we still have that title of a principal. But the funny, the funny thing was, here's a here's a funny Ken Ken story. So when I started, we had business cards with no titles. So, you know, there was there wasn't tech. There, maybe we had obviously we had a hierarchy. Um, Billy had. You know, Billy, you know, I, I mentioned Bruce calling me, but then I had an inter- a phone interview with Billy. He was still at at, uh, at Stanford. And um, and ultimately, you know, Bruce went to be the CFO at, at Encore when when John Brumley started that. And, uh, you, know, I, you know, I worked with Billy day to day. But uh, but we didn't have titles on our business cards. And then, um, you know, after a year, my my uh, co-worker partner in crime is, was a guy named Brian Crumley who's one of the the principals at Vortis Investments today a uh, great guy and um and you know, after a year we we had basically moved laterally from banking for the same salary and and kind of bonus structure which was fine you know we got to invest in the funds and that was that was a you know a, the the real benefit um but you know after a year Ken called us into his office and uh just out of the blue and we're both sitting there and, he, and we're like okay you know what's up and he goes i want you to know that i'm promoting you guys and we're like uh okay cool like what are you promoting us to well you're your associates now you're like, okay okay <laughs> um what were what were we before and, uh, he's like well you're analysts before like, oh, okay and then we, you know, we're kind of looking at each other, you know, think, thinking, you know, is there anything more? Is, does this come with, with any uh, compensation boost or anything? And we got, we got a little bold and, and we started, you know, jabbing them a bit. And we're like, really? I was like, cause you know, our card, our cards didn't say anything before. So I didn't know what, what we were, but if you say so, and, and he said, yep, you're associates now. All right. Okay, cool. And then we're kind of pausing, waiting for something more, and it's not coming. So, so uh, I think Brian said, "Is that it?" And he goes, "Yep, that's it. Thanks, guys." And and we're like, "Really? There's no, you know, there's no raise that comes along with the promotion." And he goes, "Oh, what are you guys making now?" And I I think it was forty five grand. He goes, he goes, uh, we're like, uh, you know, forty five grand. He goes. How about 65? All right, cool. And we got up and left. <laughs> <laughs> we walked out and, and you know, high-fived and like, okay, you know, we, we, 
we, we either were going to get, you know, there was a chance we, we both got fired there, but we, you know, we got, you know, almost a 50% bump in pay. So that was welcome to be an associate. Oh, that's funny. That's awesome. My, my favorite Ken's story um, is, so I do this roast every year uh, for this charity. I'm on the board of YDC, After School Literacy Program, and I know you've been to a, a, a few of them. And the first year we had Mike Lynn of Lynn Energy. The second year we had Will Van Lowe of Quantum. But what I figured out was you never ask the man of the hour if they'll be the man of the hour because some will feign modesty. Oh, I'm not worthy of this honor. Other people are just like, no, 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 no. You're not roasting me. I'm not touching this. So what I figured out for that third year of the roast is you don't ask Ken Hirsch, will you be the man of the hour? You go get John Weinzerl and you get Billy Quinn and you're like, all right, how do we get Ken to be the man of the hour? Because the, uh, the, and, you know, it's odd of me to say of Weinzerl and Quinn, the underlings, but the underlings are always a big fan of having the boss man, the boss man roasted. So anyway, Weinzerl and Billy were like, okay, we're on this. And Weinzerl calls me one day. He says, call Ken tomorrow morning at 830. He's expecting your call. And so anyway, I call Ken and I launch into these underprivileged kids and how the, this roast pays the annual operating budget and all these kids, you know can't read but we do such a great job and I kind of lay it out you know sort of nervous and and the like takes me about I don't know eight or nine minutes to lay out the whole story and Ken's response was so what you're telling me is if I'll get my balls busted for about an hour some kids are going to learn to read I'd have to be a real asshole to say no to that (laughs) okay thanks kid (laughs) Thanks, kid. So he was a good sport. I mean, he he came, he got roasted, he laughed. He was he was as funny as I've seen. And his speech at the end was incredibly funny. He made fun of everybody in the room, but it was also incredibly gracious. Um, as you know, we all know, Ken's one of the best speakers in the world. So it was, his roast was a was a lot of fun. You've had to adjust, scale, and even shrink back your office before. Maybe you were at a big established company or maybe at a public company with ample resources. But this time, you're a startup. The game's changed. But hey, the good news? You have a clean slate to do things differently. The not so good news? Your G&A budget is limited, and everyone in your organization wears multiple hats. So what do you do? You hire EAG, one source. The experts in taking back office processes to the next level by saving companies real dollars, covering IT, accounting, land, and production functions, and easily integrating your asset as the team behind your team. Check them out at www.eagonesource.com. That is the number one for the number one back office and IT outsourcing group in the game. EAG one source. So what are what are you seeing these uh, these days, kind of uh, in your vantage point at, at Natural Gas Partners? And I kind of think of sort of three buckets. Maybe you could touch on is one just kind of what's LP sentiment out there. I mean, you know, I I've, I've only talked really over the last year to LPs, kind of just in a personal level. You know, hey, how you doing? Uh, and the like. So I haven't really 
heard much in terms of appetite for energy, et cetera. And then also love to hear what your take is kind of on the M&A market these days. I mean, there's just been record low volumes and the like, but it feels like it's picking up. And then just if you'd touch on SPAC stuff, because I know you guys have uh, have done a couple of things there, and and, uh, and it'd be interesting to hear a little bit about what's going on in that world. Sure. Um, <clears throat> you know, I, I haven't spent a lot of time talking to LPs over the past year, but, you know, I'll tell you high, high level, the two the two major themes as it relates to um, traditional energy are a desire for yield. You know, if you, if you're, you know, the, the, the discussion of, you know, shale as a growth in, in, in industry is like, you know, Charlie Brown's teacher. It's wah, wah. don't want to hear that. Right. Anymore. I'm, I want to hear how you're going to generate returns and then, and then generate yield. So it's very, very much in line with with the public you know the sentiment around the public companies and is that um, and and is your take on that is it from existing assets or is there potentially new money available if you had more of a yield approach my sense was it was more hey guys we've invested a lot of money with you please start giving it back to me uh there's cert- certainly an element of that but i think i think you know, also around, um, you know, potential new money, albeit in in smaller quantities than what was available, you know, th- three three plus years ago. Um, but it's it's heavily overlaid with ESG. So you know, the, there's not a desire to go acquire two thousand old well bores that are you know not well maintained and just send me a yield that that is you know that they they want to yield but they want it done responsibly um so you know finding finding the 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 right type of assets that um you know can have reinvestment can generate good returns but can also sort of be self-sustaining and and something that um you know checks all of the right uh, ESG boxes I think it's that's kind that's kind of what people have interest in if it if it falls out of that in any way it's kind of like yeah you know tell, tell me what you're doing in, in energy transition and then that's you know that's obviously very popular and um, a grow a growing um, place where capital is seeking good opportunities. Yeah, no, that's, you know, I had Dan Pickering on the podcast about three weeks ago, and we were going back and forth just on investors, and I was probably, you know, a lot, part of it was just for effect, but, uh, but I, and I was pushing Dan just a little bit, but it just, you know, it's always been a cycle, and I used to always joke with LPs that when you feel like giving me the money, you really shouldn't. But when you feel like you don't want to give me the money, that's when you should, you know, just kind of given the nature of cycles and uh, and the like. The the thing I feel, though, is it just feels like this time it's different. I mean, there are just you know members of boards of trustees and foundation board members and the like that have just said flat out no more hydrocarbons. And it literally seems to reach to the point of 
if you're investing in something that makes a hydrocarbon cheaper or more easily available, our answer is no. And so, you know, I Dan's Dan's take on this was that it's more the red problem than the green problem when we show that we can make money for folks again, then then investors will will come back. But it it'll be interesting to see how that that plays out because I mean, you're right. The the energy transition world, I mean, it's a tidal wave. It's happening and it's it's not just government regulatory driven. It is investors, it's consumers. I mean, it's my kids, you know? My kids talk about wanting renewables and wind power and and the like. So, yeah, it's 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 a different interesting world definitely in in LP land and it'll you know, be interesting to see if we hit a hundred dollar oil. What does that actually do? Does that shake more money out, or we have we permanently changed the capital base that's going to be available to the domestic in, in industry? And I just don't know that. Yeah, and I, I think you're right. I, I think certainly the red problem um, has been a, an issue, um, you know, for the past five five or so years. Um, but but there is you know there's a desire by you know power, powerful organizations to make to make traditional hydrocarbon based energy uninvestable and you know there's there there's things that are uh, virtuous about that and there are things that are just not practical ab- about it um you know i, I i'm a I think a, a big uh proponent of Alex Epstein's kind of philosophy of, you know, energy, abundant, cheap energy makes the world better. And, and are there trade-offs? You know, there, there, clearly there's trade-offs in lots of, lots of things that directionally make the world better. Um, but, but certainly there's, there are pools of capital that, that say, no, I'm just not, I'm not, I'm not going to do it. So what's going on out in M&A world? I mean, are people buying stuff again? It feels like people are buying stuff, not in huge volumes, but it certainly doesn't feel like a year ago. Yeah, I mean, this this time a year ago, or you know, for much of last year, the you know the assets that were tra- trading hands were through some some form of bankruptcy reorganization. Um, very very few high quality assets actually coming available in the market um i think now with with gas above three dollars and oil above seventy dollars there's a you know things things are transacting there's there's not as much capital out there there's certainly not you know the public companies are uh, you know there's consolidation but not you know not a lot of appetite uh, for cash, um, cash purchases. So it's, it's really <clears throat> private pools of capital that have come in, you know, some of the, some of the, the you know, well-established players and then others pop up where, uh, you know, the, the VTOLs and stuff that, that put up their, their capital to, to acquire large assets. But, um, you know, we, we've been active, and but I think it's very selectively. There's um, 
there's not a desire to get long just to to get long it's uh you know, where do we have companies that are um, established in a with a base of operations and and from a um, you know making making money standpoint and are there strategic bolt-ons that make sense for them if so then then we may may be present if not we may not show up at all in any form yeah kind of to your to your point i was talking with um mike hines the other day and because he's still at kane and obviously more in touch with things than 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 i am and Mike was saying that he felt that multiples being paid were traditional type multiples that you and I had seen earlier in our careers. PDP, PV10, PV20 to PV25 for PUDs and and the like. And where we kind of disagreed and at least had had some argument on is, is he said, well, those are the multiples we can see. And I go, okay, fair enough, but... I don't see a lot of transaction volume being done, to your point, not a lot of transaction volume being done with cash. And where I see it with cash, I can explain the buyer's rationale by, look, they had an unlevered balance sheet coming out of bankruptcy. And so they went and did a high yield deal at four and a half or 5%. So that was truly kind of their incremental cost of capital. So it's okay to pay PDP PV10 and PUD PV20 when your incremental cost is 5%, not an all-in cost of maybe 15% or something that we might have used sort of back in back in the day. And then you can explain a couple of the acquisitions of maybe, you know, some funds had had some money burning the hole burning a hole in their pocket and the like. But any thoughts on kind of the debate we had? Both of us wrong, <laughs> one of us right. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think there's some validity on both sides. I, I have seen a called a retrenchment, uh, you know, away from sort of the NA, NAV, you know, pick every location to much more, you know, start with PDP and then sort of build up what what is uh, high certainty and keep increasing the discount. I think that I think your point on that is is valid, and I think. Uh, whether it's Mike's point or your explanation of Mike's point um, around, you know, deals have traded to, to certain buyers because they had, you know, a unique dynamic. You know, be interesting, interesting to see the the bid, you know, what 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 all the the bankers see, which is, you know, here here's the top bid and what is the you know the histogram uh, look like. You know, the distribution of of the rest of the bids. Um, my guess is, in a lot of cases, the the, the mean is is often uh, mean median is kind of often pretty 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 far below the the top buyer. Um, now that but, you you know that you bring up something that I think is a dirty little secret of our of our business, and I purposely never. At my time at Kane, went back and calculated it, but it was always someone had posed the question at one point: What if we had to sell to the second place bidder on all these transactions we did? And what would the track record look like on that? And we, I mean, we had some stunning times where literally the the number one bidder was 
three and four times number two. So, yeah, it's you know it, it's to your it's to your point that um, that you know, selection bias on this one asset buyer situation and all that plays a big role in ultimately what's get what gets paid. Yeah. What's happening out in Spackland? Seemed like they were on fire, and now it's slow. It's slowed up, and and when I say spackland, it's one getting them done, and then two despacking them. Yeah, um, you know, I, I don't spend a ton of time on our efforts in that, but but you know, we've we've uh, we've been involved. We we sold a couple of upstream companies over the past decade, Resolute and Centennial, to SPACs. Um, more involved in that, but more recently raising SPACs, you know, we raised one to do upstream in 17 and then, um, you know, had a deal with the QEP Bakken stuff in late 18 and then the market kind of fell apart and we, uh, we let that deal fall apart and just gave the money back, which might, might be the best performing upstream SPAC (laughs) uh, (laughs) over that, that time, but it was a responsible thing to do. We'd rather do no deal than a, than a bad deal. And, and then, you know, we, we pivoted and we raised, raised one in 19 to really go after minerals. And when, when the whole narrative around that shifted in in early 20, it was, they, they were out there with a, you know, 300 plus million dollars SPAC and available and, and to, uh, to de-SPAC other businesses. And, you know, we were, we were a credible sponsor in energy broadly and kind of the stars aligned and the deal with charge point came along. And, uh, and so that's, you know, the, that went, that went public via the SPAC and has, has traded up into the forties and, and back down with sentiment and now sort of performing uh, it's back in the, in the mid mid thirties, at, at least as of, I saw, saw it uh, yesterday. So you sent me a picture of yourself the other day and I noticed you were bald and had a striking resemblance to Pitbull. <laughs> yeah, that was a that was a a picture. My wife and kids and I did a a murder mystery at home, and um, and we dressed up. <clears throat> so I put on a tuxedo, but the uh, the lack of hair is a result of chemotherapy. As as is my my raspy voice, um, I thought but, you were uh, just happy to see me, but okay. <laughs> started smoking, you know, <laughs> during COVID. <laughs> but yeah, I uh, I finished uh, uh, basically two months of chemotherapy on uh, on June eleventh. Uh, discovered I had cancer at the end of end of March, um, and and started chemo on. On uh, April sixteenth, I did twenty-one treatments over two months, uh, and uh, got poked with a lot of lot of needles. But um, as of right now, I'm I'm uh, very pleased with with my uh, status. Haven't been cleared, but have at least reestablished that um, what's detectable. In my in my blood that was abnormal, in fact, fifty times normal, um, is now back in normal ranges. So, po- positive outlook, and um, you know, hoping hoping to kind of 
move past it, but um, no, it's, that's, it's a scary deal. Yeah, no, that's that's really good to hear. And um, you know, when you when we were when we were texting and then we then we talked about it, it was testicular cancer. My dad's a doctor, and what he always said about medicine was when somebody would say, "What are my chances of living?" Dad would always say, "It's either a hundred or zero. You know, it's binary. You you either are, or you aren't." So. They can tell you you have a 95% chance of, of survival, but at the same time, it, it's always scary going, to th- going through. What, what, did, what did you learn in that that maybe kind of going through it that you'd want to share with other people that, you know, because unfortunately we're all getting to the age where stuff's starting to break on all of us. Yeah, you know, I um, like, like you mentioned, I... I had a doctor tell me very early on, he said, look, every cancer is an emotional crisis. Yours is not a medical crisis. And the survival rate for testicular cancer is 98 plus percent. It's, you know, um, it's it's very high. There's there's something like 10,000 cases a year in the United States. Now there's, you know, basically a death a day. But, you know, you... You think about about that, um, and you know it's it's unfortunate, but but the, you know the the positive of modern medicine is that it is very curable, um, and uh, it, it's more it's much more common among it's the most common cancer among fifteen to thirty five year olds. And I'll be I'll be forty seven, uh, but in about a month but there's another wave. There's another wave that's kind of, you know, early to mid forties to early to mid fifties. It's not as high as, as the, uh, you know, the younger case. I think most people who hear, hear of somebody or know somebody who's gone through this, but they probably went through it in their, you know, call it in their twenties or, or late teens. Um, but, but it is, uh, it is, uh, viable, sort of in your, in your mid, you know, call it 50 plus or minus five years. Um, so, you know, I think, uh, you know, when you, when you're 50 plus or minus, you're, you're more in tune with probably more responsible in terms of regular, uh, preventative medicine type things. Um, you know, I, I had that in the middle of COVID I had a full physical at the Cooper clinic here. And, you know, I don't, this came up in between. Um, so I think it probably, probably came about sometime in October, November, and I was scheduled to have another full physical, basically, you know, first of May, uh, this year. And I was, I was fortunate to detect it, call it six, six weeks earlier than that. But, um, but certainly, you know, for, for younger people, I know, you know, when I was at, Merrill Lynch, for example, I didn't go to the doctor. I think I, I didn't even go to the dentist for, you know, at least one year. Um, right. But uh, I drank a lot of Dr. Pepper. So uh, I, had, I had two cavities at the end of that year. But, uh, um, you know, n- not ignoring, not ignoring s- small stuff, um, but also not being hyper paranoid. There's kind of a, there's kind of a balance, but, um, you know, the, this cancer, along with my my brother-in-law, um, who's four years older than I am, almost to the day, discovered he had prostate cancer four years ago, at 
you know, 40, 46 years old. And it was just kind of luck that his doctor checked his PSA because a lot of doctors don't check your PSA until 50 plus. And if his, his doctor hadn't checked it, he, you know, he had stage four prostate cancer right now. He's, you know, he's, he's in good shape, but, but, uh, you know, I, I, subsequent to that, I know, I know anything about it. I, you know, my grandfather had prostate cancer when he was like 80 years old, but, um, you know, that's, that's what you hear a lot more of. You don't hear about, uh, these cancers happening. Well, in the case of prostate happening earlier, my point being, you know, it doesn't take much for, for the lab to check your PSA when you're, you know, you just got to ask them to it. And if it comes with an extra 50 or hundred bucks, just pay it, just pay it and, and have peace of mind because early detection and, and for testicular, it's a bit of a myth that, um, that physical detection is, is kind of the first inning. It can, it can be present and, and not show itself physically, which I think was true in my case. Um, and by the time it does show itself physically and you can detect it or a doctor can detect it, you may be you know, maybe in the fourth or fifth inning, which is kind of, kind of where I, I was. Um, and, um, but the, the, it's detectable in your blood. In fact, there's a, there's a hormone it's called beta, beta HCG, which is, which is present in all humans, but, but it is, it is the, uh, the hormone that, is detectable in females when they're pregnant. So the the funny funny thing um, about this is I think I would have failed a pregnancy test um, in early <laughs> early March. <clears throat> but you know that 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 hormone isn't is is present in negligible quantities um, unless you have a tumor, like I did. And so if if they detect it in your in your blood, they can say hey. We, we got a, we got a problem. We got to, you know, we got to check on this. So, um, another early detection that, again, I, I, I don't know what it takes for, um, you know, for, uh, the labs to do that in, in normal course, but, you know, knowing what I know now, if I was 28 years old and being responsible and going in and getting, getting an annual physical and they're drawing blood, I'd say, Hey, can you check? you check my beta HCG. I don't know that I worry about PSA, but you know, might as well ask them that too. Um, so some little things about that. Um, but you know, at the same time, these things are still relatively rare. It's, uh, you don't need to live your life in fear of, of, uh, of cancer, but it does happen. You know, I didn't have any, any, cases of early cancer in my in my family history so it wasn't something that i was you know going to the going and get my annual physical saying you know i've got i've got a history of early you know colon cancer or some something that uh, you know a lot of people do deal with family history and they have to be much more vigilant um you know i think i was responsible but not didn't have any any reason to to fear for you know, a gene that, that was known to, to, uh, cause early cancer. Well, you're really cool to talk about that. And I, I, uh, I know I kind of chased you down to, to make you talk about it. Cause I think one of the things a lot of us have done 
um, is, you know, with COVID and the fact you couldn't go to hospitals except for COVID-related stuff, it's it's been a couple of years since I've gotten a, a physical. And so kind of the the call to arms of go get yourself checked out once a year because it's, it's amazing what they can do in terms of drawing your blood and testing for stuff. And you're right, early detection is the key in a lot of things. And uh, I, so, think there, I think there's a lot of doctors, you know, there's there's um, inspections that, that none of us really enjoy, but they are important dete- detections. And, and I think some doctors are like, ah, oh, I'm not worried about this. Let, we'll skip that. And and you're, you know what? You're there to get get them to check it. Yeah, it's, it's a likelihood, but but the benefits of early detection are, I think, are huge. Um, my my dad my dad always says is, hey, number one, it's your body, so you're the only one that cares about it or cares about it the most. So you need to take care of it. And and dad always says, too, there is nothing wrong with asking anyone for a second opinion. And in fact, if your doctor is upset that you're asking for a a second opinion, you have the wrong doctor because because exactly to your point. um, I mean, my my GP is great. I've known her since I uh, since we went to Rice together. and We've been friends and all. But, you know, she gave me the heads up of, hey, you know, the, the guidelines now on, on you know, PSA and all that is age 50. And I'm like, well, hey, I'm, I'm just worried about that because catching that stuff early is good. And so she, you know, I don't know, six or seven years ago sent me to a urologist. So I've, uh, I've made sure I get that stuff checked. Speaking of your unpleasant tests you have to take. Yeah. But... Yeah, you know, I found, um, just you know, another another lesson, you know, chemo. Well, it's I mean, it's different for every every cancer. You know, the, the only real discussions I've had about it in, in any in depth are with you know a friend and some um, kind of work colleagues who who are either currently or have gone through breast cancer, and and just compared notes, but. Um, you know, a, a learning from, from chemo was, uh, you, you have to be, you have to be your own advocate there. Everybody, everybody involved is well-intentioned, but they're, they're kind of stretched thin and you've got, you know, for example, I mean, the hardest, the hardest part of it for me was, was getting an IV, um, kind of day, day in and day out. And I, I had three times during chemo where where I went for five days straight, um, for seven hours a day. And, you know, that's, that's kind of a, a whipping, but, but, uh, the IV process is, is unpleasant because you, you gotta, you gotta get creative and <laughs> you feel, feel like a, a, a junkie with, you know, where am I going to, where am I going to get, you know, put the needle tomorrow? And you're like, I'm gonna worry about that tomorrow, but, um, it's not the time to be the test dummy for, for rookie, rookie nurses. Um, like I said, they have to learn too. It's just like, you know, you're not gonna, you're not gonna learn on me today. Right. Like, go, go with the veteran. Hmm. I had a, I had a couple times early on where it was, you know, four, six tries and, you know, they were, they were as pained as I was. Um, 
you know, try, they were trying hard, but it wasn't working. And it was, you know, call, call in the vet and, and, you know, here comes, here comes the vet and just like, boom, got it. And you're like, Oh God, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) You You make that mistake a couple of times and you're like, you know what? Appreciate you. You know, you're, you, you need to learn to, but call in the vet now. Yeah. Now I, yeah. I, I, I could see that growing more prevalent each time you go in. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, David Hayes, you were very cool to, to come on and, uh, and chat. And I really appreciate you sharing that story. Cause it's, um, like I said earlier, you know, a lot of us have put medical stuff on the side for the last year because of COVID. And quite frankly, a lot of us put medical stuff on the side just cause we're busy. We're macho males and you're right early detection means a lot and being your own advocate means a lot and so it's it's something we all need to think about and just accept responsibility for yeah well i said it. i'm uh, i'm i'm working hard to put it behind me but um obviously i'm a a uh, hold hold my firm and coworkers in high esteem, but, um, you know, this, this experience and just kind of how, how they rallied around me, um, you know, just took wh- wherever, wherever they were and, you know, multiplied, multiplied it by five or 10, um, you know, and, and same is true with my, my wife and kids and family and, you know, broader friend, friend group, which, uh, you among them, um, for just, uh, you know, being a great support system and, you know, the, the little things matter, you know, like I said, every, every, every cancer is an emotional crisis and as, as rational as I was and doctors tell me, you know, this is a 98 plus percent, you still have kind of dark, dark moments. Um, you know, funny, funny story. Um, I, like I said, I started chemo on, on April 16th and I think it was Wednesday the 14th. I, I told the firm, at least, you know, the broader firm on Monday, and I got a lot of outreach. You know, how can I help? What can I send you? What can I do? And I, I took my kids to school. I was driving, driving home to kind of start, start work for the day. And I was just kind of, just kind of in a bad emotional state. I was thinking a lot about, about what I was starting, you know, starting in terms of chemo. And I was like, you know, I, I, I need to snap out of this funk. And I was about a mile from home and I picked up my phone. I said, Hey Siri, play paradise city. (laughs) And you know, those drums, you know, they start and it is like my stress level just immediately dropped in half. And I said, you know what, this is, this is what I, what I can, people that want to be helpful. I can, I can give them the opportunity to participate. And so I sent an email internally. I said, I said, here's a way to help me. I said, send me a, send me a song that's either happy or, or sort of inspiring. I said, and I'm going to make a playlist for both. And, and, you know, depending on my mood, um, you know, what, what I kind of need that day or that moment, I'm going to, I'm going to play one of those two playlists and, you know, people loved it. And so many people from the firm, sometimes they sent whole playlists, but you know, it might've just been one song or 
five songs or like say a whole playlist and and i think it was really a way to bring people in who were otherwise they cared but it's like what can you do you know you can't you can't go and and sub in and say hey let me you know let me let me take let me take one of your ivs for the day so you can't do that um but the you know the emotional support is uh is key and just little things you know just sending a text saying how you doing um it it makes a difference so if you know if you know people and everybody will know somebody who goes through you know hopefully a a a friendlier form um of, of cancer you know but but be you know be available to, to support even if it's just little stuff it, it makes a difference yeah no that's that's really good advice because i mean at the end of the day i think we all sort of knew what human connection and i mean you knew this with your business partners you know this with your wife you can read the person and go, ah, oh, they're not in the best mood. I need to do something or, or whatever. And I think COVID and quarantine and that isolation really, you know, two things. One, it caused a lot of despair and grief, just the isolation. But two, it really nailed home just how important it is to have those interactions. And so I think that's great advice. And I hope listeners take that to heart and, you're right. Just reaching out with a, Hey, how you doing? Hey, you want to grab a beer on zoom? Hey, you know, how's this? Those things can mean a lot. Cause I, uh, you know, I clearly didn't go through anything near as bad as you did. I just got fired and it turned out to be a relief, but man, the folks that reached out kind of after that, Hey, just want to check and see how you're doing. That really does mean a lot. Yeah. Yep. Well, David Hayes, you're very cool. I appreciate you uh, coming on. Sure thing. It was every it was everything I could do though for us not to repeat our duet of was it summer loving that we sang at the uh, the ski fest. Yep. It was <laughs> it was conditioned on you doing uh, on Olivia's Olivia Noon John's part, but yeah, <laughs> and and I did it well. Uh, I'm just saying, <laughs> or as well as I could. All right, David Hayes, thank you so much for joining me. All right, thanks, Chuck.